As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello everyone and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, the very best board gaming podcast for enthusiasts of moral philosophy, Kantian metaphysics, Road to Avonlea, and Old English poetry. With you as always is my co-host Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Really good, Mark. How are you today? I'm very glad to hear that you're doing well. I'm doing well myself. My name is Mark Bigney. I will be your other co-host. And we're going to be talking about games this week. We're going to talk about our Eurus, our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news and why it doesn't matter, And our topic this week, which is IP games, or licensed games, or adapted games. Or really bad games. Or, <laughs> why are they so bad? When are they not bad? All manner of things related to IP games. So, Walker, what is it that we reviewed roughly a year ago? Concordia Venus, Mark, or just more Concordia in general? It's true, we reviewed both. It is a fantastic game. I've played it several times since we reviewed it, and would play it at a drop of a hat. I haven't played it since we reviewed it. I haven't played it since. I've played Antica, I've played Imperial, I've even played Navigador, but I have not played Concordia since, and I'm pretty happy about that, honestly. I Again, this is this is kind of like what I was saying in respect to Babylonia. Really like Babylonia. Prefer other Knizia tile layers. Concordia, I think, is very good, but I don't understand why it's the one that has caught the attention of the market, because Matt Gertz is such a brilliant designer, and his catalog is of such quality, and Concordia is good, I just... It's cards, Mark. It's... It's a deck builder. It's not really a deck. It's kind of sort of, maybe. Kind of. Kind of a little bit. And it has a, a completely, not, I don't want to say unique, but just very interesting victory point system where you're continuously, not only are you building your deck, but you're sort of inserting victory point cards in your deck and building towards something. It's, I think it's all around pretty solid. Romp, rompous fun time. I agree that it's very solid. I don't think there are any serious problems with Concordia, with the exception of the Venus version. Did not enjoy the Venus version at all. The team part was painful. Moving on to the games we played last week. I played another couple sessions of For What Remains. This being the Paulo, David Thompson, Ricardo, Manuel, Luis, Tomas skirmishy thing from DVG Games. This would be normally the part where I'd say this was with a review copy, but you see, I went out and bought another one of the sets. Becoming less and less the review copy and more and more Mark's copy. Yeah, this I think is what you would call in marketing terms a loss leader. They they give you the first taste for free. Yeah. And then they, they you can see the guy in the corner. Give, the, give him the first one free. 
This one's free. <laughs> the third box of the three base sets is not available retail in Canada from my normal retailers, and so I've not been able to find it. But I've been having a great time with Four What Remains. I still haven't played it with an actual human, primarily because the AI is so good and so pleasing and so simple and so satisfying. I have it on good authority that the activation system in particular, which is one of the many things that I like about For What Remains, really shines with multiple people. But of course, my reliable skirmish partner is Dr. Stallone, who sadly is many, many miles away. But I will be trying to get For What Remains to the table again with another live human across from me. As I say, I've been enjoying the solo mode notwithstanding. Mark, I got Baron Park to the table again. This is a Phil Walker Harding design put out by Lookout Games. And this this game is is very quickly making its way off the shelf. It's just gigantic setup time, sorting through the tiles, you know, and then picking victory conditions and then, you know, laying it all out. And the fact that it comes in two boxes now, it takes up extra space on the shelf. It's just on its way out. Which is a shame because we still both love playing, right? Yeah, it's a solid design. It's very, you know, welcoming to new players. It's very visually appealing and you know it you know sucks in the theme and has the tetra everyone loves the tetra shapes mark make, yeah the polyominoes just make people happy it's so true it has little bears little pandas i love the bears exactly i've only ever played it when you are primarily taking point in terms of setup and that is probably why i am so enthusiastic about it but i i agree with you we were talking about it the other day and you were commenting i'm like how, how what could you possibly have against Baron Park? Surely a good insert would settle it. And you said, no, 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 because you reminded me that every pile has to be sorted based on the number of players. And yeah, that's a pain. Needs the, needs like the dinosaur island expansion, you know, where the bears get out and you gotta, you know, eats the humans. <laughs> it's, you know, the bears escape expansion, waiting for it, want it. What about bears escape and they start riding the monorails and you can hang them from the monorails kind of like the thieving monkeys yes. in Rhino Hero Super Battle? I like it. I like, see, we've already got it half done. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the check? Exactly. On the topic of polyominoes, another week goes by, another three sessions of My City, another envelope. And in terms of design chops, again, we, we, we can't say this enough times, I think, on this podcast. I'd commented that the previous envelope, the one that kind of shoehorned in a somewhat unsatisfying player interaction element in that there was a race to do something. Again, no spoilers. This envelope more or less completely changed the scoring conditions, just in a stroke. Just with a couple lines of text, like, okay, so the all the scoring conditions you've been playing for up till now, they're all gone. You're now scoring this entirely different way. And it really changed things. It, it completely put things on their head. And it just goes to show you how much uh, a designer with the talent of Reiner Knizia can leverage this kind of format. It's true. I'm going to, like, sure shoehorn this in with another game that we both played. Because it falls into this, this sort of category. You know, My City is a great game, but it's a little bit light, right? Absolutely. And I think if you play a lot of games with your partner or you play a lot of games the same group where you get to play many times in the week or something like that, then this would be a great game. But games like we also got to play Forbidden Waters. That's a plaid hat games and it's put out with uh, Mr. Bistro, Arthur Ellis and Isaac Vega. And this it's I don't want to say it's a it's a great story game. They tell you a story, you sort of participate along in the story. The what I'm trying to get with these two games that if you don't get to play a lot of games, say you get to play one game a week in either of these games, because this has happened to me before with if either of these games were the one game that I got to play that week, I would be disappointed. Really? Yeah, it's just that they're so light. It doesn't have that crunchiness that people might want or whatever. And it's just, you know, there's just not much 
my city is a little bit more than, but you know, Forbidden Waters, it was, it was a great experience. We, you know, all, all the guys were sitting around, we're having a great time. We made up really funny stories and all that. But if that was the one game that I got to play for the week with like zero crunchiness, you know, just rolling a D12 once in a while, then I would think I would have left that night a little disappointed. Hmm. I don't know if I would share your disappointment. I agree with you that all things being equal, I would want my diet of gaming to have heavier things available than even my city. Because yes, even though it's a it's an expertly designed game, it is still very, very light. And Forgotten Waters, I will definitely agree with you that in terms of the design chops, it's not as much there. But I will say this about Forgotten Waters. It probably has some of the best writing I've seen in a board game in quite some time. Because it leverages a lot of things that other games in the similar format have failed to do. For example, if you talk to people about their experiences with, say, Pandemic Legacy, an ostensibly serious game in which you have to name a whole bunch of things, or even other serious games that I think are absolutely brilliant, slightly more serious in tone, like The King's Dilemma. The moment you get groups of gamers together and ask them to start naming things, it tends to take about half a second for their creativity to be completely exhausted, and then they just start making jokes. This has been my general experience. I'm sure there are some groups that are able to be perfectly po-faced and be like, okay, this is about pandemic, we're saving the world. This is legit and straightforward. No references to Monty Python. We're just going to, you know, give them a pr- ethnically appropriate names and we're going to name the diseases something that sounds scientific or something. This has not been my experience. Not, not Youth and Lisa or anything like that? No. Yeah. So Forgotten Waters recognizes this. And the first thing you do in Forgotten Waters, again, we don't want to get too much into spoilers because Forgotten Waters is, is heavily plot driven and there's not, as Walker says, a whole lot of game there. At the start, you're given a pirate background and you're told to play Mad Libs. You know, name an animal. In my case, I was even trying to do it relatively straight. Not trying because I wanted it to be a serious story, but I'm like, okay, well, let's just see how this goes. And so I said, okay, well, raccoon. Raccoon's an animal. It's not obviously comedic. Everyone loves raccoons. And in my pirate background, it said that my ship had been sunk by a giant angry raccoon. I'm like, all right, so this is the tone we're going for. Now, Walker leaned into this a little bit harder. Uh, We're not going to repeat the exact things that he said, but there were some your mom jokes involved. And just by virtue of some of us providing more straightforward prompts, Walker providing his ridiculous prompts, which by themselves weren't necessarily all that funny, but in context, it all became hilarious. We were all cracking up over the quality of writing. Additionally, it's an app-driven game. And very much like Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition, it actually leverages the app-drivenness of it all. We returned to the same encounter. We entered in the, you know, the same paragraph again in, into the little web form. And I thought, okay, so we're just going to go through this. No, 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 it changed because this was the second time we had been through this same encounter. And it had callbacks. There were setups. And then like 30 minutes later in the game, there would be a callback to that original joke. It was really, really well done. Hardly a game at all. Yes. But really well done. <laughs> it was the the attack of the of the two oh no that'd be spoilers okay, okay never mind but yes you're right the return back of certain characters was hilarious and i have no enthusiasm for pirate themes honestly i adore rum and bones it's one of my favorite two-player games but the piratiness of it all is to me a detractor rather than an added bonus and so i approached forgotten waters with a certain degree of trepidation and it, on top of the fact that it's supposed to be a pirate theme it's like a supernatural pirate theme which i really don't have much enthusiasm for but it's just, it's so lighthearted, and the writing is well done, and the, the Mad Libs and the back character background encourage you to have just a little touch of, of additional character insertion in, into the context of things, and you have a certain degree of pursuing victory conditions, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. 
And they went all in, right? They made it just funny. They went so over the top with the pirate theme that it made it actually interesting. Yes. It was very long. So we're talking about three hours of, you know, reading flavor text and moving things around and and resolving text-based encounters and things like that. And someone's going to have to be doing a lot of reading from the app. You could have the voice actor doing the narration. The voice acting seemed to be reasonably good. And then the game would take about five hours because they read it at a very stately pace. But here's a question for you, Walker, because I've been thinking about this. I had a great time. I thoroughly enjoyed Forgotten Waters. Do you want to play again? Yes, at least once. Okay. Because I was thinking about it. I would happily play again. I'm not sure that I need to, though. Because I'm not sure... Most of the storytelling for me was about tone. And I'm not sure I want another three hours of that tone. True. Yeah. Which is not to say that I I, I would get fatigued of it. It's just, as you say, if I'm going to have an opportunity to sit down with a large number of people, it thrives at five or more, get a large group of people together in pandemic situations, I might want to take advantage of that. And have something a little meatier, something that doesn't get to the table very often, and has a you know more quality gameplay experience. If I want to get around and tell a story, there are lots of other games where I can do that. You know, we both love Durant's, I love Fiasco. You know, there are lots of other games where I can happen. And so I really, really enjoy- enjoyed the session, and I'm glad it happened. I'm just not exactly sure. I'm genuinely uncertain. I'm not expressing doubt. I'm genuinely uncertain how much I want it repeated. Yeah. Like, when once we fill the, if we started to fill the pages again, then we'd sort of know what would be happening, and it wouldn't be as funny and might get tired a lot quicker than it did the first time. Well, there are enough sheets for three full sessions of five players, so you will not have to reuse any pirate backgrounds. And there are multiple scenarios. So obviously, were we to play again, we would do so with different backgrounds in a different scenario. But as I say, uh, I'm not averse to doing it again. But it's one of those things where, you know, your level of enjoyment is not commensurate with your eagerness to have it repeated. Sometimes you have gaming experiences like that. Yeah, I'd definitely play it again, but I don't think I'd ever choose it again. I see. And so that was Forgotten Waters. We also played a game called Sorcerer by Peter Schultz and put out by White Wizard Games. Now, there's a lot of games like this that sort of build your deck beforehand, like sort of like a, uh, what's that, Smash Up or other games like that. You're taking a bunch of decks from different categories and you add them together. And this is what Sorcerer does. The player picks their main character and then they pick their sort of their class or, you know, their type of magic and then sort of where they're from or their background or whatever you want to call it, location. And you sort of merge all these decks together and you come out with a pretty interesting like combination. I'm interested to, you know, see how more of them work together. I was expecting a reasonably straightforward magic-y type experience, you know, where you're deploying creatures and you're playing one-shots and you're enhancing the creatures and, and so forth. And that's more or less what it delivered. I say this not with tremendous disappointment. Every once in a while, I'm very much in the interest of sending, you know, my 3-4 creature against your 5-2 creature and, and things happening and special powers all over the place. We didn't have a lot of confusion with respect to... Some of the problems that arise in games like this, like timing issues or keywords or how they interact and so forth. So the interactions were clean and very well done, which is definitely to its credit. What I find strange about this offering from White Wizard is kind of like the strangeness I found in Stoneblade. You know, Stoneblade does Ascension and then they do Shards of Infinity and then they do Ascension Tactics. And I'm like, well, I'd, I'd rather play Shards of Infinity. Here I had the same experience where, you know, Sorcerer is kind of a riff on magic, but then again, so is Epic the card game. 
And I'm, I think I, I'm the only person who feels really good about Epic the Card Game. I really like just being able to set out a whole bunch of cards and have wacky craziness happen right off the top, whether or not you draft, whether or not you do a kind of cube format or what have you. And so when I was playing Sorcerer, several times actually I was thinking, you know what, Wizard, you had this right when you did the $10 card game as opposed to, you know, a big box, more expensive game with lots of expansions and so forth. So I didn't have any of the answers, so I found it very pleasant. I enjoyed it. But in terms of something that kind of sort of feels almost like Magic the Gathering, I'd rather play Epic the Card Game. True, but if you had if you had players that played a lot of Smash Up, this would probably be the perfect next step. Oh, sure. Not, not only does it merge the decks, but it also has locations where you're putting cards that on either side of things. So it's like, almost like an advanced Smash Up. So it's definitely a, a step up game if you have, you know, family members or friends that you know, are at the level of smash up. That is true. The aspect I, I am giving short shrift to the aspect of fighting over specific locations, because whether it's smash up, whether it's blood bowl, whether it's any kind of game like that, where there are creatures or units at a location, but there's also the location itself over which you're fighting that does add a little layer of, of interesting interaction. And I thought that, that was kind of cool in terms of allocating damage and allocating troops and so forth. So you're right. It was nice. I enjoyed it. Yeah. That was sorcerer by white wizard games. Played a game of Cerebri the Inside World. I've been wanting to get this back to the table for quite some time. And I played a two-player game with Dr. Handsome, where we played two-handed. Now, I'm normally averse to playing two-handed, but Dr. Handsome was, number one, willing to try out more Mind Clash games, and number two, he's very averse to team games. He does not like playing with others. We actually had a discussion. I'm very bad at calibrating or internalizing other people's preferences with respect to games. Like, I can remember what games people like and what people don't like. And I can try to guess what games some people will like, but I, I'm much better at guessing what they won't like based on categorical features. Like, for example, if there's no violence, we know that Louie isn't going to be as enthusiastic as though if there are violence, regardless of how the violence is internalized. So long as it's pitched as violence, he's yeah. there. It, he's not a violent person. It's just it's the kind of game he wants to play. It's true. Dr. Handsome regards team-based games as, and these are his words, effectively introducing, from his perspective, an arbitrary element of the game. Because it's as though his score, his position, his chances of victory are influenced by this black box that does things that are completely beyond his control, which I find a fascinating position. I'm not criticizing it. It's not mine. It's just an interesting way to look at things. So we played Cerebria, which is a two teams of two ideally game, and we played it two people uh, two-handed because playing it two-player where each controls one spirit strikes me as a less interesting way to do it. So we got out the card holders, separated out the hands of cards which is kind of okay because your hand never really gets that big in Cerebria. Anyhow, I adore Cerebria the Inside World. It is such a good game. I love how focused the scoring is, despite the fact that there's this incredible emergent complexity based on the systems of what's going on. And once you introduce the asymmetric spirits with our asymmetric action boards and asymmetric upgrades, things get yet more interesting and yet more complicated. But that is very much Dr. Handsome's bag, and that was very much something that I was eager to explore again. This was an instance of one player dominating the area majority scoring and another player dominating the action-based scoring. When one scoring avenue is denied to you, if you can find another recourse and find a way to manipulate the systems, that's obviously for the best. And that's exactly what happy, happened with Cerebria. I was very, very happy to play it again. I would very much like to be able to play it with four again, but that's going to be hard, what with pandemic conditions and the fact that it's a somewhat divisive game by virtue of its complicated terminology and its rather intricate systems. But I love spending time with Mind Clash designs. I always find that the time offers some significant payoff. And it had been far too long since I'd last played Cerebra, and I'm very happy to have played it. All right. You know, I got to play a game called Alma Matter, but some of it did matter. 
<laughs> Bam! It's a design collective called Akitoka, which apparently is Italian for whose turn is it? <laughs> and this is Flaminia Brazzini, Virginio Gili, Stefano Luperto, and Antonio Tinto. They put out Igizia and the new version of Igizia. They also put out Leonardo da Vinci, which was an early interesting worker placement slash auction thing, which I very much enjoyed, except for the way it all came together. But I liked the core systems. And also the recent uh, Coimbra, which is not necessarily big in my book, but... I very much like their design work overall, and that's why I sought out Alma Mater. What did you think about Alma Mater, Walker? I loved it, and it has the same artist as Coimbra, so it gives you that same sort of same sort of feel, and I think both you and I like the same aspect of Alma Mater, even though it, it didn't fit the, the theme very well, as I thought, but it did have this really interesting market where you were buying books and and putting your own books on the market, and you could sort of suck those books out or keep them away from other players or sort of influence the market. And that was a great part of the game. I like it when a game has one focused track that really matters. And as you say, I love it when different subsystems come together in a really interesting, intricate way where it's transparent how you can modify the game state. Not so there's these weird echo effects like, oh, this thing I did two turns ago now really completely changes the game. Oh, that, that's weird. But how high you are on the research track determines the value of the research that you produce. And the value of the research you produce determines how much it is going to be in demand in the coming turns because you basically purchase students and faculty. That's that, that's where the theme kind of falls apart. But you purchase them with books, and you have to use more of the books that are better. And as a result, you can sell more of your books, and that gets you more money. And uh, it, it, yeah, the, the market element I really, really adored. The worker placement element was fine and functional. Uh, there was a little bit of competition over worker spaces, kind of, sort of, but not really. That wasn't, you know, the, the main draw. The main draw for me was the market element. I, I found that there was no competition. I, I thought there was going to be. I took a, an ability. Everyone gets an ability at the, at the beginning of the game. I took the ability that lets you go into spaces where other players are a lot easier, and I used it in the last turn of the game once. It's true. I did worry about getting to certain places first, and I was in serious competition with Dewey with respect to the research track. You more or less ignored that part, uh, deciding that research was for suckers, which I think in real life is true, but in this game is not so much. The theme of the game is about running a university, and ever since my continuing efforts, which by the way are going to be repeated in the near future, to find a configuration of Argent the Consortium that I like... Gonna be trying with the summer break rules, which is the short version. I'm optimistic again. Here I am, Charlie Brown, running at that football, and Trey Chambers is holding holding it like Lucy. Uh, but I'm gonna be running full tilt at that at that Argent Consortium football again. But alma mater is very good on the research end, very bad on like running a university end because buy students with books. I built an army. You built an army with books. You fed them and paid them with books to go out and conquer the world. You hire professors by throwing books at them. And then they consume books during their lectures. And the chancellors, the chancellors don't need books. The chancellors just show up. They're like, oh, I see you've got a lot of money there. I think I'll work for you now. Do you want this money? No, no, no. I'm not going to take the money. I just, I noticed that you have a lot of it. <laughs> I, just, I just want to be near it. I want to smell it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, for a Euro game, I thought that the theming was about as, as good as could be expected. But it had that tight interconnectedness that I really, really love. And so despite the fact that the competition over worker spaces wasn't really there, the market element kept the interaction going. And so I think it's the kind of Euro game where I'd be willing to, eager to spend another hour and a half to two hours playing it because it's it, it's on the longer end. 
It is on the longer end. Has these adorable books. Oh, the, the yeah, the, the, the plastic books are so really cute. weird. Like I said, the theme doesn't fit in anywhere. It has this really weird, like when you put your books in the library, they slide across the top of your library. Like, yeah, it's a, a purely artificial market mechanism. Yeah, it's, but they could have because they not have figured out <laughs> something else. Like just well, they so they had this idea where they have these lovely plastic books and have the cardboard compo- components that hold the book in place. And they say, okay, well, that's a bookshelf. And then someone said, well, wait, uh, what are we going to do to explain how they slide over one space every round, representing that they get cheaper? And I think then, at that point, large amounts of hand-waving was deployed. <laughs> whatever, whatever. Yeah, no, no, no. Anyway, that is Alma Mater. I also got to play Ray Holt again. This is another Uwe Rosenberg, put out by Renegade Games. And it's a little bit more straightforward at Uwe Rosenberg. It's pretty pretty well, build your engine now, run your engine hard, get around the board. Not much. I, but I like it for that. You know what I mean? It's not it has all these, you know, different avenues or different things you can do. I just, it's nice just to play straight up, get resources, try to utilize them the best you can and get around the board. And I'm beginning to like it even more for that. Gotta have those tomatoes. Have you, have you, have you tried it yet? Yeah. I okay. played it a couple times. You played it the one time? All right. Perfect. Like a classic Uwe Rosenberg, let me take one of my existing published designs, in this case mostly Agricola, and say I want to focus on two or three of the seven subsystems of Agricola, and I want to make a game that's just that. And sure enough, it's how do you like to sow vegetables and reap vegetables? Exactly. Ray Holt by Uwe Rosenberg. Got to play another Mind Clash game this week. I decided to pull out Anachrony and play solo. I don't know why, but I just felt like... You're in the Mind Clash sort of mood. I'm in a Mind Clash state of mind. Clash. Clash. And I have to say, and I commented this on Twitter, it's really amazing because Anachrony is designed by David Turkte, and we've been playing uh, a number of David Turkte designs over, over the past weeks. And for one thing, I wanted to remind myself of my favorite of his designs, which is Anachrony. And another thing that was weird was I, I was just looking over the components because I love the big stompy mechs where you slot in the workers in their back. That's great. And I looked at the solo mode, and the solo mode looks really, really simple and clean. And then I looked at the front of the rulebook again, I saw that it's designed by David Turkse, and I looked at the solo mode again, and I saw that it was clean, and I'm like, wait a minute, one of these things doesn't belong with the other. Because when David Turkse designs a solo mode, like, for example, for Cerebri of the Inside World, or even for incredibly simple games like Blitzkrieg, World War II in 20 minutes, they're these incredibly tortured things. Now, I haven't tried the one for Cerebria. It's like another 10 pages of rules on top of a dense rule game already. But I played Blitzkrieg solo once, and it almost made me hate the game. And I had to play again with an actual person to remind myself of how beautiful and simple and fun and engaging Blitzkrieg is. Because all these nested conditions and subcategories and and AI algorithms and so just ruin the, the, the fundamental beauty of Blitzkrieg. But Anachrony's solo mode is so simple. There's this board. When it's the bot's turn, you roll a die, and it corresponds to one of the six action tokens on the board. You do the action associated with that, and the actions are typically of the the complexity of take a building from the stack, and then you move the token up to the next level. That's it. That's more or less it. And it was really, really simple, really quick, really engaging and fun. I then went to look on the recommendation of some swaggers at the solo mode for Tekenu. And I have to say that the solo mode for Tekenu, although not as simple, clean, and straightforward as the solo mode for Anachrony, it's definitely simpler and cleaner than Tekenu is overall. There's still a lot of, well, the bot wants to do this if possible, and here's a target priority list and, and things like that that Cirque loves for solo designs. 
but I have to say that I'm developing an, an observation that Cirque's solo designs for his own games tend to be a lot more what I'm looking for from a solo design than his solo modes for other games. Just an interesting feature. Makes me want to take a closer look at the solo mode for Roman Roll because I want to play that game again. I want to give it another shot uh, uh, because I thought it was it was potentially promising under some of the, the Cirque's weirdness. But I love Anachrony. Anachrony is one of those sprawling Euro worker placement games that I think is actually worth its time investment, perhaps like Alma Mater will be. Anachrony is a little less tightly focused. You know, you're doing a whole bunch of different things. And the time traveling theme, although really cool, is basically just a loan system. It's not It's not really like time travel at all. It's, it's just, not, but but the concept of it is yes, really cool. Yes, yes. Uh, the, uh, the art really sells the world and the components are great. You know, it's a mind clash game. I was, I was thinking they should have. They should have uh, themed it again under Popeye, where you can give someone a hamburger today and they'll pay you for it Tuesday. Yes, it works. I got it. <laughs> Where's my check? <clears throat> Anyhow, I, I will say that the time travel mechanism, even in that race in Eclipse, is a little bit more fleshed out because at least in Eclipse, you could send things back into the past now and get points for it as opposed to barely getting stuff from the future and paying it back later like a loan. But anyway, I really enjoy Anachrony and I really enjoyed it with the solo mode. It was very, very quick. Uh, It probably took me only about 45 minutes all told to play a game of, of Anachrony with the bot. And I really wish that more games approached solo modes like that, trying to have only a small amount of additional components no, like, seven extra decks and, and a whole bunch of other Atoma boards, but just one board and a small number of tokens. A very, very simple rule set. I really think the effort paid off. Good game, good solo mode, anachrony. Finally played a review copy of Europe Divided, provided to us by Phalanx. This is a two-player card game by Chris Marling and David Thompson. A week without David Thompson just isn't a week with, with gaming, Walker. In terms of theme, and vaguely in terms of mechanisms, kind of sort of the sequel to Twilight Struggle, in that it is a card-driven game about the conflict between Europe and NATO on the one hand, and Russia on the other, although this starts in what we would call a much more contemporary era in the late 90s. And in that sense, it's very sort of ripped from the headlines in the sense that it's about very recent history. The game itself, I'm going to be playing some more to try to figure this out, but the game itself doesn't seem to have an editorial position which is fine. Games don't have to have editorial positions. I've seen a number of comments on BoardGameGeek from angry Russians saying that the game is anti-Russian propaganda. Their words, not mine. I don't think that's necessarily fair, although I could definitely imagine how they might see things that way if they are aggrieved at the way in which Russia's actions over the past generation or so have been perceived. No official comment from Swag on that. But that's the kind of territory you get into when you're designing games about contemporary events. And it is a game where you have... Multi-use cards, but the cards can only be used to do a very, very simple thing. Like, for example, the card representing Germany can be used to establish an army, move an army, establish influence, increase influence, get money or whatever. But you only do one of those things. And you're playing two cards around. And when you initially set up the game, you figure, how am I going to get anything done? Because you're only doing two actions. And sometimes some of those actions are just getting money so you can do stuff. But it's got lovely asymmetry, and you actually end up being able to do far more than you think because of the subtlety of how the different mechanisms go on. There's a mild deck-building element. You know, if you sink a whole bunch of influence into Moldova, the Moldovan card goes into your discard pile. No offense to Moldova, it's just, you know, compared to Germany and France, it has, you know, slightly less influence on the world stage. And there's a great amount of asymmetric feeling with a very small amount of rules, because the Russians 
tend to have less money and less power than, say, all of NATO and all of the European Union, but they have much more flexibility. Whereas the Europeans tend to have much more power, but much less flexibility, and much, much less ability, say, for example, to deploy armies, especially to places like, for example, Moldova. And so the Russians have an easier time in that sense. I really enjoyed it. It was very confrontational and very tense. The scoring elements were really nice. You have these headlines that show up that go along a conveyor belt, and so you know what's coming up. You have very specific obligations, like I need my influence to be higher than that of the Russians in, say, Ukraine, in order to score these three points in the next scoring round. Unlike Twilight Struggle, where a lot of people complain that the you know scoring comes out of nowhere. Again, not that it's very similar to Twilight Struggle, but thematically it kind of sort of is. It was a very interesting take on uh, two-player card-driven gaming, not from really the, the war game perspective, but more from a, a slightly more Euro perspective. I enjoyed Europe Divided. It only had a little bit of niggling corner bits related to control of seas, for example, which was a little less clean than the rest of it. And my opponent definitely felt under the gun, as I did, with a limited number of actions and constantly going back and forth. But I enjoyed Europe Divided. I'm looking forward to exploring a little bit more of the system. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. So, Walker, a Street Masters Aftershock, which began fulfillment about a year ago, it didn't go well, and it's continued to not go well. In fact, is there a word for the Street Masters Aftershock where something bad happens, and then smaller bad things keep happening after the initial bad thing? Like a destructive event, right? And then lesser destructive events keep happening. Chain reaction of pain and suffering. Chain reaction. Like, like what if there were an earthquake, and there were smaller earthquakes afterwards? What would you... Anyway, so Street Master Aftershock, this has been the fault of a number of people, but it doesn't seem to be the fault of the Saddlers. And every update they send, because I'm still, I, I'm still getting Kickstarter updates, they just look, they honestly look beaten down. They're not happy about the situation any more than the backers are, and they say that roughly a third of the backers are missing something, whether it's minor or whether it's like all of the stretch goals. And apparently there are some people, I've, I've heard reports that there's some people who don't have anything. So the Saddlers have written off a whole bunch of stock. Apparently it's gone. It's just in the wind somewhere. It's some warehouse and their previous fulfillment partners who used to be Blacklist and now it's Ad Magic. They can't find where it is. And so it's just been written off. Anyway, so what they're going to do is they're going to reprint the entire Street Masters line in October. Just reprint everything. Just print out enough so that they can cover all the outstanding obligations. And in the process, they are going to be including new expansions. So there's going to be new expansion material printed for the first time in October. And I, for one, who was made whole very early on in the <laughs> in the fulfillment process of this, in hindsight, am very much looking forward to more Street Masters because Street Masters is one of my favorite co-op games. And I feel very, very bad for the company. I'm amazed that they've survived, to be honest. It's always been a low-margin enterprise, and they charge far too little for very, very, very large quantities of things. And the fact they've had to write off so much stock, it's a miracle they're alive. And I'm happy to support them, and I'm also happy to get more Street Master stuff. We can hope, anyway. So Tobago, Mark, was a game that came out in 2009, and it's going to get an expansion. It's crazy. Tobago Volcano. So now you're going to be zooming around in your little ATV, trying to find treasure, trying to dodge lava streams and explosions and all sorts of stuff looks cool and already game already looks amazing easter island heads huts palm trees and now there's going to be a giant volcano can't wait it's a visually stunning game i share your amazement that a game that's over 10 years old is getting an expansion i'm a little bit dubious about the mechanical elements talking about how it's changing information as the lava flows and so 
clues you had might not be true anymore? Is that? Well, I guess the the hut sort of burns down and now where the treasure might have been is not making sense anymore. So you'll take away those cubes. Like I could say it's right beside a hut. So <laughs> there are four huts on the, on the table. Sure. So there's four places could be, but then suddenly that hut, you know, the lava, how did the the clue... lava didn't like it anymore. Wait, how did the clue know that the hut was going to burn down? Mm. This is introducing metaphysical problems. It's crazy. Look, Walker, if you want to play a game where huts burn down and that raise metaphysical issues, might I suggest to you spirit out <laughs> So this is great news. I love this bit of news. Kane Tanaka. Kane Tanaka is the oldest human being on Earth. She is, as of this recording, 117 years, 263 days old. She was recently certified as of Saturday as the oldest woman ever to live in Japan. She's not the oldest human being that has ever lived. That honor belonged to a French woman who died in the 20th century. But she's the oldest woman alive now. And in point of fact, at the Guinness World Records ceremony... She was awarded a box of chocolates, and she ripped open the box and started eating the chocolates during the ceremony. Now, this is a woman after my own heart. But furthermore, you might want to know, why am I talking about this in the context of a board game podcast? Well, here's why. To celebrate her being the oldest human to ever live in Japan, she decided to celebrate with one of her favorite activities, which is a board game. Apparently, she really likes board games, Othello in particular. Othello is very, very popular in Japan, from what I've been able to gather. This is a woman who has a passion for chocolate a passion for board games, and doesn't seem to recognize social limitations on when and where you should be eating cho- a word chocolate. This may be my new favorite human being on the face of the earth, Walker. I love it. I love it too. Kane Tanaka, 117 years young. Congratulations. Congratulations. And I think the implication here is that if you eat chocolate and play board games, you will never die. I'm no scientist, but I think this is what... Does it's that wh- check out? Well, it's working so far for me. <laughs> I haven't died a day in my life. <laughs> exactly. And lastly, for me, there is a game coming out by Zoc Games called Kurtz von Kapp. And I decided to translate this as shortly before the destruction. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe the calm before the storm. Okay. Who knows? But it's another fantastic looking dexterity game. And I'm looking forward to playing it. All sorts of sticks and multiple little pillars and connecting the sticks and... Looks like it's going to be great. Zoc puts out a nice looking game, that's for sure. They always do. And that is the news and why it doesn't matter. Our topic for this week is IP games. Why are they so bad? When are they not bad? So what are IP games? IP games are anything from a game like the MacGyver game all the way to something like District 9 that we just saw recently on Kickstarter. So things based on, on books, on TV, on movies slap some cardboard and plastic in there and sell it to all the collectors. They'll love it. I think I have a prime example of what you had in mind when you suggested this topic in my basement. It is. It has an average rating of 4.51 on BoardGameGeek. Out of 5, right? <laughs> Out of 10. It is Avatar the Board Game. This is not Avatar the Airbender. This is the last Airbender. This is Avatar the James Cameron thing, which may or may not someday become a franchise. And we might ask, why do I have this board game? Why do I have it still in shrink? I've never heard of this game. I'll tell you. Well, it exists. I, I have physical proof. Here's why I have it. Let, let me guess. There was a, there was a Christmas or a birthday, no. and a no. family member thought they were doing you no. a favor. No, no. Okay. far more insidious. Because let me tell you, everyone has those uh, squicks that they, they really hate hearing about. Mine is bad gifts. Because to me, there's something desperately tragic about someone trying to do something nice and it ending up in an embarrassing debacle. I just... 
hate hearing about stories about that. I would not bring this up if this were a bad gift. I would just feel too bad about it. Uh, th- what happened here was something far more insidious. There was a math trade going on in Toronto, and I designated a proxy. And so the proxy came back with a giant box full of board games. All the things that I was expecting, plus, additionally, this avatar of the board game. And I gave it back to him and said, no, 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 no. This is not, this is not something that I signed up for. I didn't trade for this. And he said, it was made very clear to me that this was part of what was owed to you. <laughs> and so clearly what happened was... Somebody took advantage of the situation and figured, ah, oh, I'll just send this out the door. <laughs> so I was this is this is literally a white elephant situation. I cannot get rid of this thing. I don't want to burn it. That seems wasteful. You don't want to open it, because that'll just degrade its enormous value. Yeah, no kidding. So why do you think IP games are often so bad, Walker? Well, just because they have been so bad up to a certain point. There have been terrible games out there. They have I'll go right to the bottom here. There are games like Flux, like Love Letter, like Monopoly, like Risk, that keep dishing these type of games out and giving them a bad name. Well, at least in cases like Love Letter or Flux or Monopoly or Risk, if you like the core game, if you're really enthusiastic about it, you might be able to find a version that that dovetails with a theme you're really enthusiastic about. And I will say, I have heard enough very interesting things about the Infinity Gauntlet version of Love Letter that I'm actually kind of curious because it changes the rules fundamentally. It turns into a one-be-all game where there's Thanos and who's very, very powerful and playing that. I'm not a huge fan of Love Letter. I think it's one of those things that can occasionally be some dumb fun. It's not much of a game. Anyway. And there are some companies that are that are legendarily bad at this. Yes. So I know you like Lupin Louie, Mark. I'm so, I, I love I'm Lupin Louie. I know. But Bandai is a huge culprit in this. Yes. Followed closely by Upper Deck yes. and Cryptozoic. And, and the OP. And the OP. Which used to be USAopoly. Yeah, so these companies like to dish out these games on the main. It's true. Can we spend rather a lot of time actually talking about exceptions? Yes, I have a list of exceptions. And we can circle back to the awfulness later, but I would like to spend some time talking about the exceptions. Because even when the license theme is just window dressing, when it's just the thing that's slathered on top of an otherwise design, sometimes, independently, uh, you do end up with some good games. One of my favorite skirmish games is Akko, which is based on a French comic book series, which I then tracked down. I read the first volume. It didn't really do much for me. I didn't think it was bad. It just didn't really grab me. But it's just, you know, theming for a skirmishy type thing. Here are some guys with swords. They're going to fight. And I really, really, really like the game. It's not an adapted system. The system exists only for the Akko game. Similarly, the Homeland board game, it's just window dressing. There's not. It doesn't really feel very Homelandy. It's just they take some stills from the show and they slap it on to, 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 to a game that's kind of sort of about anti-terrorism. And it, 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 I think, is one of the best sort of spins on Battlestar Galactica, which is not a good licensed game in my estimation. But uh, I was hoping to get through this. I don't have anything on Battlestar Galactica. So I wanted to get through the whole podcast, not bringing up Battlestar Galactica. But... Really? Because I can see it now. People are like, very disappointed you didn't talk about oh, Battlestar Galactica. Geez. <laughs> hey, you get to accuse each other of being Cylons. And that, that is a point of of these IP games. It brings out, sometimes it brings out the one part of the show or one part, sort of like that feeling of the show out into the game and makes it funny, like accusing people of pretending to be a Cylon. They don't accuse, you a Cylon. No, you don't accuse people of being a Cylon. You accuse them of being a, quote, fracking toaster, end quote. And if you want to hear that repeated 17,000 times out of context, then yes, by all means, Battlestar Galactica is for you. All right. Outer Rim, notwithstanding... 
a lot of the Star Wars games are quite good. There's Rebellion and X-Wing and uh, Imperial Assault. A lot of them are all very good, and they all use different parts of the universe. So sometimes if the universe is big enough and it can stand on its own and support these things, it makes it a lot easier to make, make games based on it. Yeah, it's weird. Star Wars is a huge thing unto itself, right? And the attitude of Star Wars as an intellectual property and how it's been adapted to various forms of media, board games included, is a huge area of discussion. I think for me, one of the problems is that a lot of Star Wars stuff, and I've said this before, and this is quoting from Red Letter Media, specifically Mike Staclasa and Rich Evans, the more I see Star Wars adaptations in any medium, it really emphasizes to me how small the universe feels. Because you got to have the same cast of people. They're all going to show up. The You'll Be Dead guy will show up sooner or later. Gonk, that one droid that was in that half-second scene in that one movie, he's going to show up sooner or later. It's going to show up sooner or later. And all this really emphasizes, like, this is all you got? This is this is what's going on? Like, compare this to Akko, which, again, is, is based on a relatively small, narrow uh, uh, comic book series of only a handful of volumes. And, you know... There's a full, rich cast there that I haven't seen a billion times over. And it sometimes makes me wish that a Star Wars game either was an original IP or was some other lesser adapted thing. But then again, that, that, but that really highlights circling back quickly, more quickly than I thought, to why I think a lot of IP games are really, really terrible. Because it's not about game design, it's about marketing. Yeah, it's about pushing them out, forcing forcing these games out you got to get them out before like the either the tv show is over or the show loses interest and while sort of the iron is hot right so you got to get them out there and into the mass public where people can see them and get them sold right that is a good point there are exceptions though you do see some like sometimes gale force 9 will release an adaptation of something long after it's done uh the firefly games were years after the movie which itself were years after the the, the television show true gale force 9 are the ones that brought this sort of genre back right uh, it's been really bad for a long time and then when spartus spartacus came out was sort of like the turnaround point for these ip games that, that's a good point uh, then there's also to, to my mind though the masters of this are prospero hall you think so i, I got a quick list of gale force nine spartacus okay. homeland sons of anarchy star trek ascendancy firefly and dune the new dune the right? new dune, which yes. has yet which has yet to be released dune imperium it's strange i'm a huge fan of Sons of Anarchy. I really, really like that show, especially the earlier seasons. It's basically Hamlet, but done as a motorcycle club. And I like a lot of the cast. But I've never played the Sons of Anarchy game, in part because it it, it seems to me that a lot of Gale Force 9 adaptations, based on what I've read and based on what I've seen and based on the ones that I've played, are very much the almost-but-not-quite-there Euros with a little bit of, of conflict tossed in and about a half hour longer than they want to be. And I'm not saying that they're, they're definitely not the level of Avatar the Board Game, 4.51 average on Board Game Geek sealed in my basement. And they're definitely not the level of yet another Monopoly version, right? Oof. But they didn't seem quite at the level where they could stand on their own. Because when I say that it's about marketing, I don't necessarily even mean about the way market forces work in terms of a release schedule, although you're very persuasive about pointing out that often there's a time element to it. It's more that when normally when a game is being designed, the creator has some sort of initial spark. Right? And if that initial spark is, ooh, I've got a way to resolve conflict, or ooh, I've got a way to do auctions, of course I sound like an unreconstructed Eurogamer here, then chances are you're going to get something that has at least a snowball's chance in hell of being a good conflict game or a good auction game. On the other hand, if the initial spark of creativity is either, I really like this show, or your boss telling you we just bought this license, go design something, chances are less good you're going to get a good game at the end of it, I have to imagine. I've got a few games here where you don't even have to come up with anything, Mark. You just slap the picture on and you're good to go. 
See, Upper Deck has something called Legendary. Yes. Right? So it's whatever IP they want to throw on there. They're good to go. They do mix things up a little bit. I wasn't terribly impressed with the Aliens adaptation, but they do at least make some degree of effort. And then there's the Versus system where you can throw anything on. Restoration Games has Unmatched now where you can throw any IP in there. And then there's the new Funko Pop sort of throw whatever IP you want and they get to fight each other. I've heard good things about that game. And then, I'm not saying these are Pro- bad, I'm just yeah, saying Pro- these are things that they throw any IP on. It's true. It- I really want to try the Funkiverse strategy game, again, by Prospero Hall, but unfortunately, again, my standard skirmish partner, Dr. Stallone, is very far away. And then WizKids has Dice Masters, where it's spin the wheel of IPs, and Hero Clicks, which is pretty well the same thing. They tend to lean more towards superheroes, but oh, they've done they, that. They, yeah. have, they have strayed far and wide. They've done a lot that. of things, you name it. Street Fighter, Gears of War... Now, sometimes, in addition to there being good design teams, like, I really liked the Top Gun game. I thought the Top Gun Top Gun game by Prospero Hall was shockingly decent, both in terms of gameplay elements and in terms of bizarre visual flourishes that were evocative, not even necessarily of the movie, but of an era, right? The use of neon colors was very much, this is about the 80s, not even necessarily, this is because there's not really much neon in the actual Top Gun movie, from my recollection. But not all their games are great. Godzilla Tokyo Clash didn't really work for us. And sometimes you end up with great games by accident, I think. And my, cl- my classic example for this is Mass Effect Risk Galaxy at War Edition. Because I don't know if... I, have I ever made you play that game yet? Yes, for sure. Yes. We have played it. Because it's the original trilogy Risk with just a new cone of paint on it put on the Mass Effect. And I maintain that the Mass Effect theming works better than the original trilogy theming for a variety of reasons that if I start going into it will be the entire podcast. But this is, again, clearly just a cut and paste job of an existing game that itself was just an IP version. But the rules changes are significant enough from the base game that makes it work. And it just, there's there's a certain degree of serendipity where I think the whole package comes together. Then there are games where, again, I'm not really sure to what extent it's evocative of the original uh, process, but the game design itself is really solid. For me, the pinnacle of this is Hellboy. Hellboy is still one of my favorite dungeon crawlers. It doesn't feel a whole heck of a lot like the comics to me, honestly. I like the comics. I've read a, a fair bit of them. The Hellboy game has, you know, the same characters and the same visual touchstones, but I don't really think it comes together in quite the same way. And then there are Euro games that are solid Euro games based on IP, but generally tend not to be sort of contemporary media IP. The, the salient example of this is Beowulf. Beowulf the Legend by Reiner Knizia, which, when it was released for the five seconds when the market was paying attention to it, was widely derided and put into the standard cliche of Knizia's games don't have theme on them. And I have to assume it's because well, a, th- a thematic game about Beowulf, you'd, you'd have a square grid and you'd move a miniature and you'd roll to rip off Grindel's arm or something like that. But I've been reading, actually, this we're going to have a, a brief detour here into the second installment of Swag Poetry Corner, if you don't mind, Walker. Yeah, no, it's very... I've been reading the new translation of Beowulf by Maria Devana Headley, and... There were bits in the introduction, in the translator's introduction, that screamed to me, this is the Beowulf board game. This is what she says about the story. In it, multiple old men try to plot out how to retire in a world that offers no retirement. The phrase, that was a good king, recurs throughout the poem because the poem is fundamentally concerned with how to get and keep the title good. The suspicion that at any moment a person might shift from hero into howling wretch, teeth bared, causes characters ranging from scops to ringlords to drop cautionary anecdotes. Does fame keep you good? No. Does gold keep you good? No. Does your good wife keep you good? No. What keeps you good? Vigilance. That's it. 
And even with vigilance, even with courage, you still might go forth to kill a dragon, or if you're Grendel, slay a Dane, die in the slaying, and leave everyone and everything you love vulnerable. That's the Beowulf board game. <laughs> and I really, so I really agree with some critics like Chris Farrell who point to Beowulf as an example of how Knizia knows how to adapt things. And I'll just, just one last note about the new translation of Beowulf. Beowulf famously begins with an old English word, quat, which is a vocative, and it's been translated as low or hark or listen in various translations. But uh, Maria Devane Headley translates it as bro. Bro. So the first line of the new translation of Beowulf is, bro, tell me we still know how to speak of kings. Nice. Which is just awesome. That anyway, awesome. Beowulf the Legend, awesome game. Go play it. The other things you see are based off of the part of the IP that you didn't know existed or didn't like. So maybe you saw a TV show that was based off a comic book. And the board game is now based off the comic book and right. not the TV show that you wanted or the book. Or it's a... or. A, a game based off of a book that's depicted, you know what I mean? It, it's like a long, this long chain and you have no idea where it's going to end up. And then you wonder if it's going to, like I said, I've sort of hinted at this before, tracking shelf life. You know, if this show ends or, you know, the movie becomes obscure or whatever, is the board game be, going to become less desirable to play? I like it also when board games kind of make fun of their source material. We talked a little bit about this in Cthulhu Death May Die. It really does seem to be playing with and undercutting the standard IP trappings of Cthulhu. Again, not a licensed IP, but nonetheless an intellectual property. I felt as though the Lord of the Rings did well in its games. It has the great the living card game. Apparently, it had a huge following and did very well. And I liked uh, the Five Armies game and the the large board game that came out. I thought they were both. It's solid. weird though. I'm not really in much of a position to comment on Lord of the Rings, only having finished the first one, which is the Fellowship of the Ring, and not enjoying it at all. But my recollection is, it's not really much about armies fighting. You hear about the armies having fought, but it's mostly just some, you know, people wandering across a trail. A little bit. It all depends. <laughs> you can. There's different ways to play it. It's just how you play it. No, I know, but what I'm saying is, is that the events depicted in, say, Battle of the Five Armies or in the game War of the Ring. They seem to be elaborating in and focusing in on things that, although consequential to the story, are not really recounted in the story. Is oh. that accurate or is that not accurate? I didn't read the – I've read the books only a long time ago, okay. so I, I have enough. to read them more recently. I'm sure, given that it's J.R.R. Tolkien, that there will be no shortage of people telling me how wrong I am. Exactly. And then there's – I have this thing called weird stuff. <laughs> you have this thing called weird stuff, Weird stuff, like Sherlock Holmes. Mm. Like this game is based on Sherlock Holmes, but it's such a vast – you know, such a, you know what I mean? I don't yeah. Know. And especially since it's so singular a character, right? Yeah. Well, that's the two things I have that or James Bond or anything that's like a singular character like that. Yes. You got to have IP games and, you know, I think they're going to do fairly well just based on their own. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes consulting detective was at least good at capturing the character of Sherlock Holmes because it felt very much like the story in that Sherlock Holmes would show up, show off how much he was smarter than everyone else in the room, leave come back later having solved the mystery, having made intuitive leaps that make no sense to a normal human mortal, but nonetheless turns out to have been right in the end. If everything else is is implausible, Mark, then what is left must be possible. No, that's not... That's exactly how it works. Is it? And is then, that the line? And then I have a couple games here. I don't know if that's the line. So there's games that they play inside the TV show or movie. Yes. That later they become... So there's a Star Trek game I still have upstairs. It's like this... The uh, three-dimensional chess? Three-dimensional. No, it's not three-dimensional chess. It's this... It was... They played it in Next Generation. It was like these globes and you're moving them up and down these levels. Oh, and, okay. 
only the big globes can only take the smaller. It's it's not a bad game, and it's not the video game they become obsessed with in one episode of the next generation. No. Okay, no, it did take me a while to find it. It's like I thought they based it off the one where Data and the other guy were playing this weird, you know, area control game. But no, it's just in one episode, it's sort of like in the background, and all the kids are playing it. Anyway. I see. And then there's one where, say, the company wants to put out a board game, so they purposely say that the characters in the TV show or IP are playing this game. Do you know of this ever happening, or is this just your suspicion? This just happened just this week, Mark. Really? Yeah, it's called Telestones, the King's <laughs> Gambit. <laughs> so it's a League of Legends game, and they say, oh, all the characters in League of Legends play this game. Sure. And now they put out this game called Telestones. Yes, I, I desperately wish to review that game based solely on the rules explanation, but I will hold off. And then there's one from Game of Thrones. I'm, I'm sort of uh, tempted to want to read the rules because it sounds fantastic in the books. Savas, yeah, Savas, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so it's been there's been an adaptation. Well, they they have one on uh, on the one of the computer games, and there's a couple on Board Game Geek. I haven't had a, ah. a close look at them yet. There was a similar example of a game within a video game called Gwent. And people who've played the Witcher games, I have not played the Witcher games. Some of them got really, really into playing Gwent in The Witcher 3. But unfortunately, there was never really a way to make physical versions of it. There were some physical versions made in some variations. And now there's a, a dedicated video game adaptation of this. Some people swear by it, although it's not really much of a physical product. I think that we do have to spend a little bit of time talking about Dune, the board game, because it is commonly held up, and I think for good reason, as one of the best ways to do an IP. Now, granted, it was done by Eon Productions, the same people who did Cosmic Encounter and Hoax, and I know you don't like Cosmic Encounter, but it is nonetheless one of the foundational games of the hobby. And Dune really is an example, whether you love it or hate it, and I'm, I'm mildly pro the, the, the Dune board game. It very clearly wasn't a hack job where they just slathered something on at the end. It was very much the kind of thing like, these are the things we love about the Dune universe. Can we come up with a game where organically all these elements act the way they should in the Dune universe? And we're talking about a lot of different elements. Talking about all the factions that work the way they do, about the weather, about the worms, about the economy, about the spice and all those other things. And it all comes together and it all works. I've not read the Dune books. I've seen some of the, 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 the movie adaptations. But everything certainly seemed to fit together properly, and I, so I can definitely understand why it's held up as the paragon of how to adapt an IP into a board game. I bet you they're, like, really waiting for that movie to come out. It's like, hey, we put out this game. Can you, can you, <laughs> can you release the movie so we can push some of this product, please? Again, I have no enthusiasm for the Dune universe, but I have a great degree of enthusiasm for Denis Villeneuve, so I'm looking forward to that, you know? Gotta, gotta represent that patrimoine. Good, solid Quebecois filmmaker. He's done great movies and stuff. It's true. I missed a point here that has to be said, Mark. It's These IP games are usually terrible when they uh, use the screenshot art, and that's usually why they're really bad. <laughs> it worked. Oh, so sometimes it works kind of okay. Like I, I don't remember it being particularly painful in Homeland, for example. True. It's mostly just headshots of actors. <laughs> but, I mean, it just makes it really easy for the publisher. Another reason why it's easy for them to get them out quickly. Oh, it comes off as lazy? Yeah, it comes off as lazy, and it lets them get it out quickly. Sure. One thing that occurred to me while thinking about this, though, was that there's another entire genre of game that is based on trying to hew very, very close to a very narrow set of specific events, and that's war games. War games tend to get away with it, though, because they're willing to accept any degree of complexity. 
And so that's where the, the famed chrome gets in. It's like, well, we want to capture the specific cataphract charge that happened historically at this one particular moment. So we're going to write in all these rules for cataphracts, and that's how it's going to work. If you're Gale Force 9, or if you're any of these other companies, having having friend like BOP, you're not willing to engage in that level of granularity to try to make it feel the way that it is. And that's one of the things that I think often contributes to the sense of window dressing and or the necessity of a really singular designer the kind of designer that can really focus things down and make things evocative while nonetheless being simple or tightly interconnected. That's a very, very hard design challenge, and that's one of the reasons why these IP games don't feel good. I do want to mention, though, finally, a bit of optimism. I'm very, very much looking forward to two, I- two IP games coming out soon. You've heard me talk about them before. The oh, Steven yes. Universe Beach Palooza card game and the Scott Pilgrim Miniatures game, both put out by my favorite game designer in the world, Eric Ubioris of Toronto, Ontario. And who you've never played a game. I've never played any of her games, but she's my favorite game designer. And I look very much forward to being brutally disappointed and for her to soon become my least favorite game designer. <laughs> there you go. For me to bring it all the way around is that there's a lot of games out there where people retheme it themselves, where they really enjoy a certain thing and they make things, you know, a Pokemon game or they just, you know, change the cards up and make. I let you go on Board Game Barrage one time. <laughs> and since then, you've mentioned Pokemon like four or five times. Wow. I have to assume there's a connection. Well, I'm just saying it's the most common one, right? Because there's one. Is that, it? One, well, one, there are so many cards out there already. Pokemon is a beloved IP, and there is yet to be a decent Pokemon game released. Okay. I'll take your word for it. As Simpsons, they do they do it for all of them. Oh, yeah. But then one of these has actually been made into a game where a, 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 a game player made a My Little Pony Scythe, you know, got the attention of the publisher, and then eventually they actually put out a whole game called My Little Scythe. So that's, you know, an interesting sort of IP sort of story. It's true. I've sometimes thought about making a version of Thomas Lehman's Time Agent rethemed to the Mass Effect universe because I thought that the factions mapped on rather neatly, but I never got around to doing that project. (laughs) It just takes too much time to do such a thing. It's true. And I don't have any graphic design shops, so I I would have then had to outsource all the graphic design elements to somebody else if I'd had a collaborator that that level. So yeah, there are some IP games that I absolutely recommend. I recommend Arco, uh, the original skirmish game by Laurent Pouchet, not the Chronicles version. I haven't tried that. Homeland, I like Top Gun from Prospero Hall. I really like Hellboy. I like Mass Effect Risk. And I think that Beowulf the Legend by Ryan Kinsey is one of the, the, the best games ever made. Any, say, any big recommendations from you? Yeah, are? Mechs and Minions. We talked about the the Stones game from uh, from Riot, but they did put out a game called Mechs vs. Minions. It's a fantastic IP game. And XCOM doesn't get the buzz I think it needs. I think it's a fantastic sort of timed, app-driven, you know, where it's you're under the gun all the time. Time is of the, of the essence. XCOM by Eric Lang. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.